This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrim Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Greg Stafford. Occupied Istanbul. Least favorite fake moments. And the Westfield Watcher. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Andrew Jones, Patreon backer, asks Ken and Robin, I'd like to hear something on working with Greg Stafford. And I think, Robin, that's pretty much you because I cleverly have only played with Greg Stafford. I was given a chance to work with Greg Stafford. He looked at me with his Bonaparte eyes and suggested that I should move out <laughs> to Oakland and live on a floor and eat lentils and uh, write the new Glorantha with him. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> fortunately, I'm married. <laughs> because, uh, just like Green Lantern, my ring warned me of danger. And I said, gosh, that sounds great, Greg, because in that moment, it sounded like the greatest thing imaginable. But I have this other thing I have to do in Chicago, uh, with my wife. So that did not happen. And I have never worked in that sense, uh, with Greg or professionally, although obviously, um, he is kind enough to consider me a colleague and, and peer, but you, I believe have worked fairly closely with Greg on a number of different projects. So it must be even more fun than that Bonapartist example indicates. So what's it like working with Greg Stafford, Robin? Tell me and Andrew. So my, my, uh, I guess my most extensive collaboration with Greg was on the uh, game that was then called Hero Wars and eventually became uh, Hero Quest. And we could do a whole other 15 minutes on the history of that name change. <laughs> uh, but this was to be uh, the new Glorantha role-playing game. And I pitched it to him as this is going to be the game that will feel like your stories about Glorantha because there is a divide between the play experience that the RuneQuest rules move you toward, and Greg's writings about Glorantha, as found in uh, King of Sartar and other uh, various and sundry publications. And so uh, Greg's focus has always been on uh, the mythic and the historical and big sweeping sagas and uh, weirdness and uh, uh, 
varying uh, competing viewpoints that all seem to be both correct and incorrect at the same time. And the activity of playing uh, RuneQuest, especially at the level at which the system works best, is that you are mugging a baboon in the desert for his brown's leg greaves. And RuneQuest does a great job of that sort of hard scrabble, uh, Bronze Age kind of uh, evocation, and it's adventure uh, fantasy know. is what I yeah. might in, in call it. I've I've run tons and tons and tons of BRP games, including RuneQuest games, although none of them sent Glorantha. And you're absolutely right; it's it's like uh, very much the uh, Fofford and Gray Mouser swords and sorcery, but you know more like uh, nightsticks and necromancy, even you know just very. Very down to earth and gritty while still allowing weird stuff to happen all the time. Right. And so, uh, the challenge here, and, th- and that was a, a pitch that was calculated to, uh, perk up his ears. Mm-hmm. And there's also a, uh, I don't know how interesting this history is, but the, the, the short <laughs> it's version interesting is. To Andrew Jones, that's for sure. Right. Is that, uh, well, well, the, the history that I'm about to embark on. Um, so there was a point, uh, when I think, uh, maybe Rob Heinzo wound up taking the offer that you didn't, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe that was another time when that offer happened. I don't know. Uh, but he, there was a, a desire to do, uh, the new, uh, role-playing game. And at that point, uh, there was a, an Italian company that was going to, uh, uh, finance the new Chaosium based on their, uh, takings from the collectible card market. Uh, that didn't end up happening. And in the meantime, the convention that I went to, to talk to Greg, uh, about that, Greg got snowed out, uh, but I wound up uh, bumping into uh, David Dunham, uh, who uh, was working on a new uh, computer game in the very early stages and wondering how we could find a writer to write the writey parts uh, who would know Glorantha. And we were sitting across the table just sort of idly talking about this project when a light bulb appeared above our both of our heads. And so I wound up working on uh, King of Dragon Pass. And that's very much in my mind right now because I'm now currently working on the first chapter of Six Ages, which is the uh, fi- the, the long-awaited, long-anticipated, uh, now finally financially viable, thanks to uh, uh, tablets and iPhones, follow-up to King Dragon Pass. So that wound up being my first big uh, Glorantha project. There, the feedback from Greg was filtered uh, through David, but a lot of the time that my goal there was to kind of pastiche Greg's style in writing the extra myths that were required for this one particular pantheon, the Arlanthi pantheon. So it was about trying to sort of catch his literary style and reproduce that so that the things that I uh, wrote would feel reasonably uh, Gregly. Once that was done, uh, another sort of pre-Kickstarter attempt to crowdfund is what eventually led to Hero Wars becoming possible. And uh, there, that was a much more direct collaboration and was about if... This new rule set, which was a very narrative-based rule set based on the way that stories are told, which is the only way that I thought that I could achieve this brief, uh, then uh, the issue became learning more about the unpublished version of Glorantha in order to create a set of rules that would uh, replicate it. So Greg and I would talk on the phone for a couple of hours every uh, week, and I would try to nail down his brilliant, fascinating uh, sometimes uh, mystical insights into Glorantha and turn them into something uh, fun and playable. And one of the challenges of that, for example, is that uh, Greg uh, sort of sees the world through two filters, uh, one of them uh, sort of categorical and scholarly, and the other uh, through his experience of imagining it. So on one hand, something like a, you know, here is, you know, he made a map of that world that is detailed to every watershed, Mm -hmm. which finally, you know, decades later has finally been reproduced and is available uh, to the uh, public from, you know, a whole new set of maps uh, by a cartographer, Colin Driver, that were based on those now crumbling gigantic paper maps. Um, And something like a, well, here's a, a list of every uh, temple and how many people are needed to support uh, what size of temple and uh, sort of charts and graphs, stuff like that, uh, appeals very strongly to Greg. Um, but also he imagines this world and starts to imagine uh, new things about it and to perceive new things about it, depending on uh, what strikes him. And also sometimes uh, if you 
kind of challenge him by doing it wrong, <laughs> and then and then that will be enough to sort of uh, you know spark him to come back with you with the way that he would do it. And so um, it's different than having a conversation with someone who is I'm creating this IP as a work of entertainment and. I want to have all of these elements in it to appeal to all these different audience segments. And, uh, you know, that's not the way Greg uh, no. thinks at all. No, it's not. Um, and so, for example, uh, and sometimes the, the categorical side and the imagined mystical side um, sort of would bump up against each other in a way that was sometimes difficult to resolve. So uh, at the time, for example... Uh, in his uh, categorical uh, framework, there were four types of magic. Sorcery, uh, which is just uh, book learning and based on materialistic rationalism. Uh, deism, which is based on emulating the gods, and that is the, the magic system that you know best if you know RuneQuest. Uh, shamanism, which of course is like shamanism in the real world, is like petitioning spirits for favors. And then mysticism was the fourth item on that list. And uh, Greg was conceiving sort of as, well, mysticism is sort of about refusing the world and not doing anything. And the question is then, so how do we have characters from the mystical part of the world, because they're big, you know, societies that are essentially mystical in nature, how do we have them do things that are fun and interesting? How do you do the Glorantha equivalent of a Wuxia character, for example? And that became a, a hurdle that was very difficult to uh deal with. And eventually, later, Greg revised his schematic understanding to there are three types of magic, <laughs> each of which has a mystical side. Right. And so that then enables you to have, uh, you know, characters from that huge swath of the world that was previously defined as mystical uh, doing interesting, cool things. Because yeah, there is an idea in Grantha that you can go on a false path of mysticism, and that can give you great power, uh, but that prevents you from reaching enlightenment and is ultimately corrupt. But but hey, great power. It, but, but hey, great power. And But what if you want to play, you know, a Wuxia character, someone who, you you know, accesses the magic of Lurantha through, through mysticism. So um, you can't rush a, a Greg reconciliation of seemingly irreconcilable uh, insights. You just have to wait for that insight to occur. And Greg is an enormous amount of fun to talk to and hang out with. And he's always got uh, interesting facts at his disposal that you want to uh, note down and look up. And uh, if you want to get uh, great book recommendations, he has uh, all sorts of those. And, uh, you know, he's just a, a delightful, charismatic guy, uh, very uh, projects a, an air, you know, of uh, shamanic authority uh, and uh, is part of that world as well. Uh, you know, he has his own mystical practice and I would uh, not attempt to characterize. You know, he will tell you about the various uh, mystical experiences that, that he's had. Uh, that air of shamanic confidence is not something, for example, that if two of you are flying somewhere, that you may think, because he projects it, that he knows when the flight is. But no, you should be the one who knows when the, the flight is. Yeah. <laughs> That's the lesson I learned. As with, as, with, as with other shamans, perhaps someone else should be carrying the bag. Yes, the, the airport <laughs> schedule is, is uh, not something that the spirits will uh, actually help you with. Well, uh, and that shows their wisdom. They don't care. Right. So, uh, you know, in summation, working uh, with uh, Greg is a delight and we'll always have new uh, ways of sort of expanding uh, your perception, and it's uh, a lot of fun if you're a fan of Glorantha, or I assume, uh, you know, the, his collaborators were lucky enough to work with him on Pendragon, I'm sure had a similarly great experience of uh, seeing in depth, in one case, into the fictional world of Glorantha, or other into the historical mythic world of uh, King Arthur. I mean, I, I guess the only difference is that if you're working on Pendragon, in theory, you could find a source that would trump Greg in theory. <laughs> I mean, you could say, no, look here in, you know, the, the Chronicle of Yvain, it says X and Greg would have to say, well, yeah, it does, but you can't really go and well, dig Greg out. Would then explain to you why you were <laughs> right. wrong. He might explain why the Chronicle of Yvain is wrong, but the point is that you can't do that with Glorantha. You, there's no, yeah. there's no going back to, um, uh, Credian Detroit's and saying, no, Credian says that the Orlanthi are X and so, and he's like, well, 
Here's and the thing. Nor can you cite earlier Greg Wright. <laughs> no, no, obviously not. That's uh, the 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 Gregstament is an is an ongoing work in process that is constantly being reconciled with itself. Right, and Greg has stepped back from uh, design now, and uh, so for example, uh, is no uh, Jeff Richard at uh, now at Chaosium, formerly at Moon Design, because uh, uh, Moon Design uh, rose up and uh, uh, acquired uh, Chaosium, uh, is the uh, final arbiter now of uh, what is canon, and uh, he is also a, a delight to work with, but uh, like everyone who isn't Greg, isn't Greg. Right. Um, yeah, so I would say that to sum up, um, Greg is the person that you look to if you are ever tempted to believe that charisma is just a dump stat. He is the the walking embodiment of why people do things for other people, because he has, as you say, that shamanic authority that reaches into your soul and you find yourself considering a move to Berkeley against all better judgment, for example. Um, and he's, as you say, just a delight to, to, to talk with on almost any topic that he cares to mention. I mean, game design, Arthuriana, uh, anything really. Uh, Greg is a boon companion, a absolutely magisterial designer in terms of sort of per- perceiving the whole game as a thing and, uh, just a heck of a heck of a guy too. So, uh, if you haven't worked with Greg Stafford, too bad. If you have worked with Greg Stafford, good for you. And if you haven't played a Greg Stafford game, what are you waiting for? Go out and pick up um, uh, Hero Quest and or uh, Pendragon right now and make it a part of your life. And when we are getting to the recommending other people's bibliography, we are almost definitely not only out of the hut, we're practically out of the podcast. So let's move on to another segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The Doric Column, the Stovepipe Hat, the old-timey lingo tell us that we once more ventured into the History Hut, and this time around, Patreon backer Alexander Perman uh, wants Ken to give us the 101 and the uh, extraction of uh, gaming uh, interest from the occupation of Istanbul following World War one. So uh, where would you start that uh, historical narrative? Because that's, in a way, a culmination of a much bigger, longer historical narrative. Well, um, the French, uh, who are always to be counted on for this kind of thing, in the purpose in the person of General Louis Franchet d'Esperé, uh, started it in 1453 when the Ottoman Turks took Christian Constantinople away from the last Byzantines. 
this was the first time that Constantinople had changed hands since that point. And when uh, General Despare uh, entered Constantinople for the first time, he entered uh, on a horse alone, led by two men, just as Muhammad uh, II had entered Constantinople in 1453 as a way to signal that the Ottoman Empire, which had lasted um, uh, much longer than any anyone rational would have thought uh, for, you know, five centuries, give or take, was no more. Now, some might have considered that provocative. <laughs> some might have. But the interesting thing about this is that the only legitimacy that the occupying forces had was the person of the sultan, because they immediately arrested virtually the entire cabinet and much of the parliament of the Ottoman Empire for war crimes uh, committed during the First World War and sent them to Malta to get tried by the British. And the trouble with that is that the sultan, basically, this sultan, the current sultan, Mohammed VI, uh, said, okay, yeah, if we have to sacrifice a bunch of people to the British to keep the empire, cool. And they started busily forging evidence that proved all these guys were guilty. And uh, eventually the British said, we can't use any of this evidence. And so as a result, um, uh, it became a big stink. And the, when they tried these guys for war crimes, they found them all innocent, which sort of wrecked the whole justification <laughs> of it pretty early. And then when the British government basically said, well, to heck with that, we're just going to uh, continue the occupation. Uh, the British governor general, Calthorpe, says, well, we don't actually have any legitimate authority to continue the occupation. Uh, it violates the treaty to continue the occupation. And uh, the British government says, yeah, but, you know, Constantinople. So he resigned and they put a new guy in. But the problem with the um, uh, with the entering Constantinople to humble the sultan is the sultan is literally the only power left in the country who cares what the British think, because he's the only one who's left living in Constantinople. Out in the countryside, there is a Turkish general named Kemal, uh, Mustafa Kemal, who is the hero of Gallipoli. Uh, to the Turks, uh, less, much less so to the British, um, and is been given the position of inspector general of all Ottoman armies right before the war ended. And although the Ottoman emperor, you know, the Sultan happily rescinds that appointment, uh, Kemal goes around and he says, well, the, the Sultan only rescinded that because he's held prisoner by Christians. And if he knew his right mind, he'd have kept me on. So Kemal has this great level of, um, uh, of legitimacy to his claim to represent the true Turkey. And he's going around recruiting a Turkish nationalist army that as the Sultan becomes more and more a pawn of the European powers, Kemal begins to think maybe this Turkish nationalist army should care less about what the Sultan thinks and more about what Mustafa Kemal thinks, um, which is the general thinking of people who assemble uh, armies as it turns out. So while the occupation is going on. The French and to a lesser extent, the British and Italians think of this as closing a chapter in, you know, the Ottoman empire's presence in Europe. They're going to give the rest of Turkey and Europe to the Greeks. They're going to give uh, the coast of Anatolia to the, to the Greeks and, and assign that to, to, to Greece to run. And uh, they're going to partition the whole Ottoman empire up amongst themselves. And it's just going to finally end the Turkish question. Right. Because we all know, how well Turks are going to adjust to being uh, run by the Greeks. Exactly. And um, uh, the uh, Mustafa Kemal can begin to point and say, look at all the Christians that are being uh, sent against us, because in the East, Armenia, uh, justifiably, has decided that it is going to stake out as big a piece of the Ottoman Empire as it can possibly take, uh, what with having just been genocided uh, moment, mere moments ago. So the uh, Armenians are basically fighting a war against the Turks. The Bolsheviks uh, in Russia are offering Turkish generals money and weapons with which to fight the Christian and so far not communist at all Armenians and perhaps fight the uh, very capitalist uh, Western powers. Some uh, Ottoman armies think, well, this is great money and guns to fight our enemies. Kemal, however, looks over into so, uh, Soviet Georgia and the other Soviet uh, republics and says, everyone who takes Soviet money and guns turns out to suddenly not have Mustafa Kemal or the local equivalent in charge, but some commissar. So yeah, I'm there a broader agenda, maybe. Hmm, chinsha, I'm chinsha. not going to do It's like the Soviets are up to something. I can't believe it myself, but perhaps it is true. So Kemal um, basically starts fighting, not just the Sultan's uh, pretend army, and the Armenians, and the French in Syria, 
and the Greeks, wherever he can find them. He's also fighting a uh, bandit army that the British are paying because when the British realize that Kamal is not going to come back to Istanbul to get, you know, slapped on the wrist because he would have been slapped into Malta. They write back and they say, we, we need 27 divisions uh, to put down the um, uh, the Kamalist insurrection here in Turkey. Sounds like a lot of divisions. It does sound like a lot of, and it sounded like a lot of divisions to literally everyone in Britain. It sounded like a lot of divisions to everyone in the British cabinet, with the exception of David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill, who was always good for invading Gallipoli. <laughs> <laughs> Just do it right this time. We already own Gallipoli. How hard can it be? And uh, it turns out this was the first time Canada ever said, uh, no thanks to uh, the crown. Uh, when David Lloyd George assumed that all of the dominions would come storming back into Turkey uh, in 1920, uh, the Canadians said, we just got finished saving your bananas from uh, the central powers. And we were talking to the Australians about what happened to the colonial <laughs> yes. forces at Gallipoli. Turns and, out that, uh, that's uh, terrible. Yeah, and so this is the first time that Canada ever says uh, thanks but no thanks to the British. So We got fields to plow, man. In a way, the Constantinople occupation is... Canada's Independence Day. So good for you. <laughs> so as a result, without those 27 divisions and, and this bandit army being the only arm of British power in, uh, in Turkey, the British say, all right, screw it. We're not going to bother about a final treaty. We're just going to move the Greek army into Turkey and let them fight Kemal for us, which is a great plan, except that Kamal is much better at fighting, as the British perhaps should have remembered from Gallipoli, than the Greek army is. So the Greeks right. get and, and home field advantage, and, and home field big. advantage, and he's Kamal and they're Venizelos or whoever it is. Um, the, the 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 Greek general is not um, uh, a number one, frankly. So the the occupation continues because as long as you've got all the ships in the Golden Horn. You can do what you want with Constantinople, but rapidly the rest of the countryside is falling away from the Sultan's control. Uh, the Sultan has signed this Treaty of Sev, which is the one that splits up the whole out of an empire, but Kemal has rejected it as an imperialist plot, which in fairness it was. And Kemal beats the uh, Greeks uh, hollow, drives them to the sea, and then puts a uh, an exclamation point on it by massacring the Greek population of the city of Izmir, which is the biblical Ephesus, which has been a Greek colony since the 7th century BC at least, and just slaughters them all, men, women, children, bam. And that is the sort of uh, thing that says, no, we're not going to have any Greeks uh, occupying anything that you want to give them. Britain, if you want to fight us, you've got to do it yourself. So in 1923, they have another war scare. They back down. Um, uh, the French basically talk Kamal out of attacking the British. And uh, the British then agree to end the occupation in favor of Kamal if he will sign a new treaty, the Treaty of Lausanne, which is much better to Turkey. They still lose Syria. They still lose Iraq. They still lose Arabia. Uh, but they don't lose European Turkey. They don't lose the coasts. And uh, at the end of all of it, guess who's in charge? Mr. Mustafa Kemal, who changes his name to Ataturk, because attaboy, Kemal, Ataturk. And how long does he remain in power? Uh, Ataturk remains in power uh, pretty much as long as he wants. Um, he's there until he dies. There's a line in a Bruce Sterling novel that, of all the dictators of the 20th century, given the free voice of the people, Kemal's statues would be the only ones left standing, which is an interesting argument and may not be true anymore, given that Turkey is currently moving against the Kamalist consensus, but Kamal dies in 1938 and he dies as president of Turkey. So uh, that's what happens with Kamal. And then the Kamalist uh, consensus basically keeps running Turkey until very, very recently when Erdogan uh, gets elected without being the chosen party of the army. And it's uh, Kamal being a military general. He set up a fairly intensely military republic uh, with shades into utter military dictatorship that uh, ran Turkey, like I said, up until very, very recently. And a lot of the bloodshed and troubles in Turkey are coming because uh, the old Kemalist establishment, which is also the secular westernized establishment, doesn't want to give power over to the uh, more rural Islamist part of the countryside. And that is uh, leading to all manner of uh, brouhaha in Turkey today. But Kemal can't really be blamed for it because he at least left it in charge of most of its national territory when he found it. So good for you, Kemal. So uh, if you're going to create a role-playing game campaign set 
during this era, what is your hook and what is, what game are you or setting are you picking and what are the characters doing? Well, I think you if you're doing a game, um, you have kind of two choices. You can either play some sort of revolutionaries who hate all occupiers and all Greeks and all Armenians and want to throw off the foreign hand. So you're playing like a Turkish nationalist game. And I think that should have uh, qualities of, um, of magic. You're drawing on the true Turkish magics. Uh, not the, the, uh, the, the empty, meaningless magics of, of the Greeks, not, so not alchemy or, or organized magic. In, in, uh, Staffordian terms, you would be shamans, uh, with your wolf totem and your spirits of the steps that, uh, that Osman brought into Anatolia, and you would use those powers to drive out the effete, uh, Western powers. Or, you would be effete Westerners, or not so effete Westerners, in Constantinople, Knowing full well that it is, uh, very much the bayonets of the troops and the battleships in the harbor that are keeping you from being at the very least politely sent back to Malta and at the very most, um, strung up or bastinadoed. And you have a narrow window in which to exploit Constantinople for its magical treasures or hunt down vampires or do whatever it is that your nominal position as an occupying power allows you. But you know that at any time, a Kamalist uh, detachment might decide to whack you or a freedom fighter might kidnap you or any number of other bad things might happen. So it becomes sort of a, a Saigon, Baghdad, Arabian Nights sort of a game where you are trying to solve a problem or enrich yourself. And you have a limited time scale in which to do it because you can see the occupation beginning to fade. And I'm not sure you could combine them because the good guys in one are the bad guys in another, and the bad guys in one are the good guys in another. Right, and it just sort of makes sense according to what people are familiar with. So uh, Turkish gamers uh, who uh, follow us on social media and listen to this podcast uh, would be well-equipped to do the uh, first version, and people who need to be introduced to the history of Turkey makes more sense to have uh, Western characters come in and uh, gradually receive all the exposition they require, and they might discover that the situation is more ambiguous so that, uh, you know, it's not that you've got both the good guys and the uh, bad guys of the two separate campaigns, but you might go in thinking you're the good guys and realize that, uh, as always, those situations are more nuanced than you really want them to be. Right. And in an alternate history, uh, you could even be Americans because the initial discussion was that the Americans would take over the mandate for Armenia and Kurdistan uh, which was supposed to get its own country uh, in the first little bit of the plan. And then that accidentally fell through the uh, stools right. when Woodrow Wilson sold them down the river. And there was going to be an American uh, position in Constantinople. So there'd be American naval ships and American troops in Constantinople, plus American forces out there in Kurdistan and Armenia uh, sort of guarding the frontiers and preventing a new set of genocides from occurring while keeping a wary eye on Lenin and his Bolshevist troublemakers. And then that could have become a, you know, an early sort of a, um, a no-fly zone in, in which a free and independent Armenia and Kurdistan could arise, or it could have turned into a horrible, grinding, miserable occupation, uh, just like the American adventure in Siberia did. So the advantage of going with an alternate uh, history is the usual advantage of your being able to let the uh, players... Uh, affect the direction of historical events and right. also being able to say if you're caught out in a research error that, oh, alternate history, mm -hmm. there you go. And, and that means a player uh, on either side can say, well, I would like to prevent the, the, the massacre of everyone in Izmir. I think that that would be good. That's a goal that we should have, that if that uh, that mass slaughter occurs, it will awaken the evil vampire or it will do whatever we don't want it to do magically, or it's just a mass slaughter and it's horrible and it should be prevented on its own terms. And that can give you a goal in an alternate history that in a straight historical game becomes more of a doom or a weird that no matter what happens, you know that, you know, millennia of civilization are going to be crushed out uh, by the bayonet in 1922 and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, speaking of dooms, our doom is to forever move on from our segments into new segments, which we'll do after this important commercial message.
Hey Ken, what happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your Steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons, precisely like Andrew Laliberti, Paul S. Enns, Samuel Hawley, Jack Gulick, and Steve Sigety. Be sweet like Rahat Lokum and support the show at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. The chutter of IBM Selectric Keys, the gurgle of medium shelf bourbon, and the air of irritation and cigarette smoke tell us that we have entered once more the sacred precincts of the place where we learn how to write good. And in today's How to Write Good, we look at stock elements such as bourbon and typewriters being signifying of writers, but not just symbols, but anything that is stock, but doesn't actually ring true, unlike bourbon for writing. Right. So, Robin, what do you think are some of the things that people write that, while they may be well-written, do not ring true and are therefore annoying because we see them over and over and over again, and they never work out? Uh, the number one most egregious thing uh, is the way that dreams are treated in fiction and uh, the movies. Because almost all of us, not everybody, uh, but almost all of us dream on a nightly basis. It's a standard, ordinary part of human existence, just like uh, eating and, uh, uh, you know, unlocking doors and going through them and uh, walking on sidewalks. But it's almost always depicted in a completely unreal fashion. Because the thing about dreams is that, uh, in general, they're not all that on the nose. They are confused but they're not surreal either. They're not full of weirdo symbolism. Uh, there's a great uh, scene in the uh, movie Living in Oblivion, which is about making an indie movie, and uh, they're filming a dream sequence in, in that one, and Peter Dinklage has been hired to appear in this dream sequence, and he says, why do they always think there were dwarfs in dreams? I'm a dwarf, and I don't even dream about dwarfs. And uh, this is, uh, you know, a, a recurrent pet peeve of mine that a, a dream you see that carries immediate on the nose uh it's symbolic meaning and is clear is not like real dreams at all and i have occasionally written a, a dream sequence but i do make sure to before i get to the little tiny bit that is uh, thematically appropriate because occasionally yes you do have things in your dreams that tell you something about what's going on in your life you know i've made you know very uh carefully uh, set out to make sure that I depicted all the cruft and, and weirdness and, and uh, you know, at least allude to the fact that this is not uh, a big, symbolically meaningful dream the way you always see it in fiction, but you never see it in real life. My particular pet peeve of the stock moment that happens a lot, and because I read a lot of speculative fiction, is not just the As You Know Bob sequence, which is always terrible, but the As I Know Bob sequence. When the character stands and looks in the mirror and takes an inventory of themselves and, oh, goodness, this is what I look like. Goodness me. <laughs> yes. Or uh, in it, it's especially terrible in alternate histories where the character has to look at a history book and think about how an alternate history happened. Or in one case, I swear to bejesus, they looked at a map on the wall and mulled over the differences between uh, the, the, the state of things in their world. And 
it's not even that they had to call up the general and brief him on something the general knew perfectly well. It's they had to stop and look at a map to tell the reader where they were in the world, which, I mean, it's forgivable if you're from Earth and you went to alternate Earth. Yeah, then you would look at a map, and, and Poole Anderson does that a lot, but uh, it's just a way to, to get past the introduction and, and let his character find his feet. But when a character who theoretically lives in an alternate history is paging through an atlas and saying, look at that. Japan's rule of India continues or whatever. It just, it's horrible. And it's really, really breaks every kind of realism and every kind of, of mood that you want to establish because I instantly know your world is false. If you have, uh, data about your world you want to present, put it in appendix. It was good enough for J.R.R. Tolkien. It was even good enough for S.M. Sterling. So just bank it all back there and don't have your characters remind each other of stuff all the time. And certainly don't remind yourself of stuff. It's, it's especially egregious because it's completely unnecessary. <laughs> you just have the authorial voice in prose provide the information. <laughs> you don't need the device of looking at the map or uh, looking at yourself in the mirror to describe what your features look like. Which, of course, Yes, of course, no one does that. It's like you might occasionally have a scene where, you know, he noticed he had a few gray hairs or whatever. But we don't look at ourselves in the, in the mirror and describe ourselves to ourselves and as part of our uh, interior monologue. You're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, for all I know, you know, Brad Pitt does it, but sure, if I looked like Brad Pitt, I'd be describing myself to myself all day, every day. But I don't think people do it, really, is, is my point. Yeah, Samuel Clemens looked in the mirror and noticed that in this reality, he did not have a bushy white mustache. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of Samuel Clemens, another thing that drives me absolutely nuts is the completely unreal way that the writing profession is <laughs> almost invariably <laughs> depicted in... Uh, in fiction, you would think that writers would have some means of researching how writing works <laughs> and how uh, much you get paid to write and how much you have to work and how selling a manuscript works and what happens when you're behind on your deadline. And, and again and again and again, you see being a best-selling writer depicted as uh, basically a interesting profession that the character can have so that you never have to see them working mm -hmm. <laughs> and they have full control over their schedule which uh i first of all even that bit as a professional writer nope <laughs> nope doesn't work that way and the detail of how it's wrong can vary from piece to piece uh, in stranger than fiction for example there's a uh, the best-selling writer played by emma thompson clearly writes sort of spare literary fiction and guess what <laughs> You're, you're not that, uh, you don't sell that number of, you don't sell Dan Brown uh, level copies, even if you're a famous literary writer on the order of Joan Didion. It just doesn't, that's, that's not what sells on that level. And so the, the details of the writing life are almost always wrong. And that actually has a negative real life effect because I think that feeds into the assumption that writers are uh, part of the financial elite and living high off the hog and therefore it's okay to uh, pirate their stuff because they're going to be fine. They're all, uh, if you've heard of them, they're wealthy. Nope. That's why nope. it's uh, nope. always better when uh, someone like Fritz Leiber or Stephen King writes a character who's a failed writer. And they used to be a writer, but then they stopped or they got an alcohol problem or something else happened that uh, meant that they are now stra scrabbling through life, living off the occasional royalty check and the increasingly yeah, the schedule is free because they're not alcoholics. Because they're alcoholics. Because they're, um, yeah. and, and the increasingly grudging uh, subsidy of friends and, and relatives. And, and so you get a, a, sometimes when writers write writers as the prime character, they're doing it out of a place of revulsion and hatred. And it really, really works. Um, but yeah, you're, you are right. And I think it's more true in movies than it is in novels, or maybe I read fewer novels about writers because I don't read that much contemporary mainstream fiction, but I think movies get writing wrong in a hilarious way, but I think that's because they're primitive savages who don't understand how the written word works at all. Right. And there would be nothing more tedious than the, <laughs> the life of an actual, the writer. actual work of writing. Yeah. Do you have another one? Another thing that uh, makes me bananas. I would say that the, Oh, it's not so much a stock moment per se, but the choice to present something as an exact parallel of something else. Um, in the real world, nothing ever parallels anything. And I understand that in there, there are genres of fiction in which, you know, a, a golden bowl has to represent purity or, or whatever. But when you are reading along in a, in a novel and you recognize the plot from either history or another novel or a movie you saw, 
I begin to question the purpose of this novel, that if the purpose of the novel is not to tell a story, um, or ideally the author's story, um, then why I, I can, I can read summaries of uh, the movie Zulu any number of places. I don't need to stumble onto it in the course of a novel. And that's not really a stock moment. That's a stock kind of laziness where it's like, well, I'm just going to have, uh, this, uh, event map to this historical moment and I'm not going to, I mean, it's one thing if David Drake in the, in the first page of his uh, space opera books, he says, this is modeled on these three obscure bits of classical history. And if you didn't want to read classical history plus spaceships, it says David Drake on the cover, what's wrong with you. But for another author to say, we're just going to do the French revolution in space because I'm bored and don't want to think of a new, a new story, or we're going to do, um, you know, wars of the roses in fantasy land. My argument is, Let's go and if you want to write about the Wars of the Roses, write about the Wars of the Roses. Don't cheapen it up. I, I just don't like the the mapping of one thing to another thing. Like the reader is so ignorant and the writer is lazy. It's not a good look for anybody. Right. If, if all it is is the War of the Roses in a fantasy world, that's, again, yeah, why did you do that? Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes when I'm reading history, there'll be a little detail that it's like, oh, that one nugget. If I take that and extrapolate that into a whole other different thing that doesn't look like it's historical context and therefore have to do it in a fantasy world or alternate world or in space or whatever, uh, that's fine. But don't keep bringing up those parallels. Mm-hmm. Don't keep bringing it back to the original. It's like, and, uh, and yeah, if you pick up some little moment from, you know, the occupation of Constantinople and you think that would be great for my fantasy world where the humans are occupying this um, uh, elf city, um, great. But then don't have Elf Kemal Ataturk and Elf uh, and 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 Goblin French General and all the other things. Don't just map it straight. You you can pull it in, and if you're in the kind of uh, future world where that happens, maybe you have a an insurgency on some planet, and a little bit of it is very much like Vietnam. You can even have another guy say, "Wow, this is just like the, I, I told you this would happen." Because look at the NBN Fu. That's exactly what happened on Old Earth in 1954. And then and you a, have the other character. No, it's unlike that because of this and this because and of this, this and the other thing. And then ideally, what happens next is not the rest of the Vietnam War in space, but a bunch of other things that might happen in a counterinsurgency in space. And it's not like the literature of of history is so parlous that you have to follow this exact story constantly you can you can range all over and borrow things because human behavior is the constant and human idiocy is the constant but the specific ways in which that manifests is the whole reason we have fiction i mean people fall in love roughly similarly uh for thousands and thousands of years but the specific to that character of how they felt when they fall in love is why you're reading a love a love story now dumb fake gestures in uh fiction and, and movies uh change over time so, for example, uh, if you're looking at movies from uh, anywhere from like the 40s to the 60s, it suddenly becomes a convention that you can calm someone down, especially a woman, by slapping her, <laughs> which, thankfully, that Don't is see that colored much. very differently if you see it now. And, of course, slapping people does not calm them down. There's no universe in which that was ever a thing, and it betrays some uh, sort of base misogyny about the, the era, but... That's not how it worked, but that went away. However, the an equivalent, uh, fairly recent uh, example of something that you uh, started seeing maybe about 10, no more like 20, 30 years ago, sort of the rise of indie cinema, people trying to do gritty drama. The new convention is uh, vomiting because you're emotionally upset. <laughs> and you see this again and again in a certain type of particularly gritty uh, indie movie, and it's even... Uh, you know, metastasized from there into um, more pop fiction things. But although sometimes in history, I think people have uh, uh, thrown up because they've uh, confronted some terrible emotional revelation or something really bad happened to them. That's not the biological response to being traumatized or upset or shocked. Uh, you can uh, sort of have a panic attack or you become sweaty all over or you can feel that you need to sit down. But that doesn't happen in real life at anywhere near the frequency that it happens in movies. And I think it's because it's a, it's a big visual thing that makes it seem gritty. And of course, actors love chance to throw up. That's a big, exciting moment for them. But, uh, and this was a, an insight that I can't claim as my own. I originally read this in a John Waters essay. Mm. And in fact, this may be because still- nothing has ever made John Waters throw up. <laughs> this may be <laughs> yeah. a John Waters thing, not a human thing. Oh, no, I, I think he's correct in this. He actually does art installations where he 
uh, has photographs of uh, freeze frames from scenes in which uh, actors are ridiculously uh, throwing up because they're upset. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, do you have another again, one? I'm not saying like he hasn't done the research. I'm just saying that he may be a a, um, a privileged observer in this case. Because uh, a thing about you know emotional uh, trauma, there is a there is a phenomenon in which it does affect your 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 uh, gut bacteria and it affects the way that you um uh, your uh, vertigo and things like that there is a you know some truth some experiential truth to um i i felt it in my gut when people are mean to you or or you have a a violent emotional shock so again i don't think john waters has ever thrown up for any reason but i suspect that especially if you're in sort of an indie art film sort of indie protagonists being gen- uh, gentle creatures might indeed have that kind of reaction. I would, I would hesitate to say that that doesn't happen. And again, that's different from throwing up because you just killed a guy like Sean Bean does in Ronin, uh, the greatest vomit in, in film history. Right. If, if there's some actual thing that triggers your disgust mechanism and not your f- fight or flight mechanism, because there's a reason why uh, biologically that you don't uh, hurl when you're upset is because if you're upset, the chances are you should be running away. Right. So instead your body gives you the runaway signals, not the, uh, throw up over yourself and get killed by a predator. And get killed by a predator. Who's going to be, ah, oh, man, throw up on the prey. Oh. That's horrible. <laughs> That's halfway wrecked it. I'm going to have to wash this guy in a stream. Good thing I'm a giant raccoon. A giant raccoon. Um, <laughs> speaking of looking into the traumatic life of the writer, um, Robin, do you have uh, a perhaps a non-raccoon-based example uh, to close this out? Yeah, yeah, one more really quick one before we go. Uh, this is another thing totally from movies, is when the character... Uh, wakes up startled from a deep sleep and uh, th- the character uh, sits up immediately right into the camera, often with the, uh, you know, screamy face. Uh, this may also be because they've had an unrealistic nightmare right ahead of that. Uh, but in real life, even when we suddenly wake up, the only time you might come anywhere close to bolting right up and, and having a screamy face on your head is uh, if you've got a leg cramp. But other than that, again, that's something that you see all the time in movies, and it's a big energetic gesture. But Or if you overslept and you're super late. Right, but even if you're overslept and you're super late, you sort of, you startle awake in a prone position and sort of right. muzzly. And you, you look at the clock and then you jerk bolt upright. Yes, exactly. Right. So it's that looking at the clock, the absence of looking at the clock that tells you you're in a fake movie moment. And speaking of looking at the clock, perhaps the clock is telling us that we are at the end of this segment. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress and scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for and dying for and maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for grab the delta green agents handbook from arc dream publishing in oh so secure pdf format at rpg now the eerie feeling that someone is about to get you the uh, desire to look into every corner and to carefully read the small print handbill that uh, someone has pasted to the uh, lamp post that uh, seems to disturbingly quiver in the edge of your vision suggests that we've entered the conspiracy corner. And in this case, uh, Patreon supporter Timothy Quorum uh, wants us to comment on a uh, real life and sort of ongoing a disturbing story and see if we can uh, de-disturb it and unrealify it enough to do anything with it in the world of gaming. And that is uh, the Westfield Watcher. According to Timothy, he's supposedly sending sinister messages to a couple of young homeowners in Charles Adams' hometown. It's also incidentally the town where they shot the TV series Ed with Tom Cavanaugh. Well, there you go. That's disturbing enough. There you go. Uh, The letters claim he is part of a multi-generational cult watching a particular house and waiting for its 
second coming. And this is something that's currently happening that the, uh, so basically the story is that uh, a couple uh, moved into a new house in Westfield, New Jersey, and uh, shortly thereafter started getting these elaborate letters uh, left on their doorstep, I guess, from someone who is, I think, pretty clearly conversant with horror images mm-hmm. and, and literature and quite disturbing uh, threats to their future children and claiming that they, they've been part of a family that's been watching this house for uh, generations. And that uh, there was a lawsuit. The, the couple who moved in are suing the previous owners of the house for not telling them that there was a uh, a person who was sending harassing letters to the residents of the house. The other, the previous owners uh, countersued, claiming that they had no knowledge of this, that they got one message and it wasn't frightening. And uh, so that's something that's, you know, a real ongoing uh, court case. The house is on the market again, and uh, surprisingly, no one has been uh, quick to rush and, and snap it up. Um, and so um, I think before you turn this into anything gameable, you would first have to check uh, your audience in your group and see uh, just how interested they are in playing out a real-life current stalking story that still has the potential to go horribly wrong. And which may also be a real-life current mortgage fraud story, in fairness. Right. We don't know anything, and the lawsuits are ongoing, so no one can comment. But uh, the people who bought the house had a... Uh, they bought it as a investment, or at least they bought a lot of other houses as investments. Um, they wound up getting caught in a much bigger uh, piece of house than maybe they wanted. And maybe they sent the letters and tried to sue to get out of paying the, um, uh, the, the fees on the house. They um, never brought anyone in to do the renovations, despite what the house, uh, what the, what the watcher letters claim they've um, got sort of a, a bad reputation, maybe, I want to say, amongst the area um, elites, the editor of the town paper, um, a couple of cops who are either associated with or familiar with the case say, look at the people who get the letters. Don't look at, you know, the town of Westfield. There's other stuff. And, of course, that's what Westfield elites would say if their town actually had a multi-generational ghoul. But on the other hand, it's also what they would say if a couple of people uh, are trying to pull a scam and uh, screw over locals. Uh, by claiming that there is an imaginary stalker. Now, if it's not an imaginary stalker, it's a super creepy story, and it is creepy not in the fun, exciting Lovecraft way, but in the kind of quotidian, oh, Lord, we have to live next to other people kind of way that is, I, I think, not as conducive to fantasy or to fantasization as other sorts of stories. Even gruesome murders, um, there is a, a apartness to it, that you can turn a gruesome murder into something, if you're a, a callous person like myself, at least. Right. And there's also the uh, subjective gap in time, mm-hmm. that something that is going on now reminds us of what is happening to us. And in this case, this this could well remind, if you've got a player in your group who has ever been stalked uh, in real life, which unfortunately... Uh, Happens uh, every now and again. Happens, uh, you know, more frequently than any of us would want, and statistically is not unlikely necessarily. So you really want to make sure that, first of all, nobody has a real-life traumatic experience that they're uh, remembering and don't want to uh, visit in the uh, world of uh, role-playing games. And if this was a story from, you know, 1916, you might be much easier to sort of uh, go to... to uh, to, to town with it, you know, everything that H.H. H. Holmes did was much more horrific than anything has happened here, but that was in 1893. It was in old timey times. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I should also mention, of course, the other possibility is that someone wanted to buy the house, didn't get to buy the house and started sending letters to try and drive down the purchase price of the house because fewer people want to live in a stalker house. And so, you know, already the people who own the house now, the people who got the first batch of letters or the, the batch of letters that's under contention had to lower their their price. They're taking a loss, theoretically, if they don't win their suit on the sale price. So maybe that's the plan is that, you know, it, it, I don't want to necessarily say that real estate fraud, if that's the case, or some kind of fraud only points to the current owners. It could point to any number of people with an interest. It could be a realtor who didn't get it sold by them and is mad that they missed out on the commission for a one and a half million dollar house. I mean, there's any number of old man Witherses that this might be uh, without making it be a multi-generational ghoul. And so anyway, to continue with our notion. Right. So I think that sort of points us towards 
a version of this that you could take and detour and, and make uh, bearable. So first of all, move it back in time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, put it in uh, conveniently in the, in the 30s when Trail of Cthulhu is set and uh, have the apparent answer be that it is a stalker. And then the real thing that is going on is not that way. So that it it's an introduction to the story, uh, which I guess is sort of broadening out our answer to this question into how to take something that uh, seems dicey and start to make it work in something that is just going to be the desired amount of disturbing for your group, which of course varies from group to group, right? You might and, have it, and it could be a thing like in Needful Things where the presence of some evil causes all the borderline cases to start doing quotidian evil to each other. So even though the actual letters are still being sent by a disgruntled realtor, the fact that they decided to do it just now is because Nir Lothotep has set up a curio shop, right? Right. So uh, what could happen then is that the, the investigators come to town and fairly quickly find out who's been sending the messages, but they don't have any recollection of doing so. They're doing so in, uh, they sort of fall into a trance and then they do it. And then that uh, A takes it away from the level of real humans being malevolent in a possibly violent way to each other gets you that level of supernatural activity. And then the mystery becomes, you know, figuring out how this person became affected by this and what the actual uh, supernatural impact of that is and, and what the big plan really is, whether it's, you know, Nyarlathotep just decided that one of his thousand faces looks like Max von Sydow and has moved to town and there's an unconnected series of weird things that happen, or it's part of some uh, greater plot. And so you could you know, hook into a more comforting form of house horror where, you know, there's a reason why the cultists uh, want to uh, buy that house, but they need to knock the value down, for example. Right. That that's the house that someone buried something at, or it was built. I mean, the, the town of Westfield goes back to revolutionary times. So maybe that's where the, you know, headless horseman is buried, or that's where George Washington buried the sacred medallion that keeps America safe or, or any number of things might be the case. Uh, right. Or it could be that another version of that is there's, there is an interdimensional doorway in, in the house that if you renovate, uh, you will break through the drywall and find it, and that the benevolent forces of protection tried to warn them in a variety of benevolent ways. That didn't work, and so they're resorting uh, to this way, uh, but that, of course, doesn't work either because the player characters show up, they open up the drywall, and through, through the gateway they go. So I, I think overall the question is how many different completely unrelated non-stalkery plot lines that you could generate using this as a front end so that you get the sort of momentary fear that comes from the real world and then you move into the uh, sort of more pop cultural feels that uh, help us, uh, you know, manage these, these horrible uh, things that happen in real life. I would say uh, that another thing, when we're talking about Westfield, New Jersey in the 1930s, we should mention that it is a bit of an artist's colony for the Harlem Renaissance. That there was a um, uh, a white uh, wealthy woman who felt that uh, black art should be protected from the uh, invidious racism of elsewhere, and made sure that uh, they could set up a stable artist's colony without uh, jazz and drugs and uh, and and white cops that weren't on the payroll of Mrs. of Mrs. Mason. And so uh, Langston Hughes is in Westfield in the 1930s, as is the brilliant folklorist and scholar of voodoo, uh, Zora Neale Hurston. And I think that if you are having a mysterious haunting thing uh, going on in the thirties in Westfield, that one of the uh, locals would be saying, well, I'll bet it's that Zora Neale Hurston with her voodoo that has brought this to our lovely white town. And when you go look into it, you discover that Zora Neale Hurston knows more about the occult than your characters have forgotten. And by getting her to help you, you have a much better chance at undoing the, the, the curse or f solving the mystery without necessarily, you know, blowing up a house or generally making the town of Westfield hate everybody. And one way to turn those two things is that uh, it could actually be the artist colony that is getting the supernaturally tinged threats. Although that um, uh, that that makes figuring out the motive a lot simpler. Yes. Well, there's there's motive, and then there's finding out who's doing who's it. Who's doing stopping. it, yeah. So I think uh, we've uh, come up with a number of ways to make uh, something that is uh, otherwise dicey 
uh, gameable and can therefore declare victory. And since this is our fourth segment, uh, say goodbye to everybody for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as... Jacob Ansari. Shane McLean. Hyperlexic. Jason Denon. And Frank King. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>